Catchy. Need some spoons up here to play. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Caleb. Hi, Caleb. Great. And for all those who've been asking, and I know praying for me this week, about the lion's loss, um, and those who've been weeping with me, I appreciate that. It's okay. It's a great season. We're moving on with life. Um, but we're going to jump right in today because I've got a lot of scriptures we're going to be looking at today as we start off this new series. And, and I want to make sure to kind of focus in our time as much as we can. So I'm not going to talk about the Lions and how they were this close to going to the Super Bowl. And we almost had it, but that second half really fell apart and it really broke my heart and I was crying a little bit. <laughs> Let's pray and pivot our way into this Strangers Welcome series. Um, God, uh, we, we thank you. And the worship was just moving my heart today. Um, it's all about you. It always has been, always will be. And for the last 2,000 years, when the church gathered, whether it was in a place like this or in the early church in a house in Ephesus or even right now under uh, shelters and trees and, and huts in different nations around the world, every time we gather, the reality is it's all about you. And so Lord, I pray that this message and our time today would be all about you. Get me out of the way. And Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're starting this series, Strangers Welcome, to Loving Strangers Like God Loves Strangers. Um, and just as we kind of get ourselves in the context of this series, um, remember it's kind of built off. We had the first series this year was um, this idea that God takes strangers and makes them family. That's really our theme for the whole year. It's part of the, what we're focusing on is one of our culture statements that we believe at River Run that God takes strangers and makes them family. But this month, it's moving to a new series. We're specifically focusing on this idea of strangers and how strangers are connected with or engaged with by our church and by the church and ultimately by our God. And um, if you look at the etymology or the big word, like, kind of like the story of a word, where did it come from? Uh, the word stranger, if you follow it back in history, the word that it's rooted in was actually the word for like someone from a different nation, someone foreign to us who would come and visit a different country, right? So it was, it was a, a, a significant difference of this person is from a foreign land. And so the word stranger, if you looked it back at the original language and rooted it back, that's what it was used to mean. But over time, that word stranger by our day has come to just mean anyone that I don't know. They're unknown to me or unknown to my group. They're a stranger. Or they're not like me. They're strange. Now on the count of three, I want you to point at the person in this room that you think is the most strange. You ready? No, I'm just kidding. All right. Anyone not like me, right? And so, and, and we grow up, and as kids, as kids, for the most part, here's at least how I grew up, is you're introduced as kids to the idea of a stranger with things like, hey, don't talk to, yeah, don't talk to strangers. Don't get in the car with a, now listen, there, I have kids, I have four kids. That's, there's some good parental advice there, Okay. But we're introduced to that, or even more recently, the, the very quotable rhyme, right? Stranger danger. Yeah. All right. So stranger, we're introduced as children in our culture now as strangers are something to fear. There's a threat in a stranger. Now we get older, and we maybe don't feel like every stranger that we don't know is a threat to our actual safety, but we may perceive them as a threat to our comfort, 
a threat to our convenience, a threat to our security, a threat to what we want to do, right? We still feel that. And as a result of that, the general tendency of humanity when it comes to strangers is this. Avoid the stranger. Don't make eye contact, right? At Winn-Dixie, it's like that person, they seem like they talk to everybody, and I'm just trying to get my groceries and get out of here, and I don't want to feel weird. This is going to be awkward, so I'm just going to not look at them purposely and like sneak by, right? Avoid the stranger. Avoid the person you don't know. Avoid the person who's not like you. Avoid the person you don't like. Avoid the person that intimidates you. Avoid, avoid, avoid. But it's interesting, when, when most of our kind of conceptualization of strangers and how we relate to strangers, we're usually not the stranger, right? We're the person in the group or the family or whatever, and the stranger is the other person. But we've also all experienced the discomfort of being the stranger, right? The discomfort of feeling like a stranger or even worse, being made to feel like a stranger. I remember in fourth grade, I was a, the, the brand new kid in the class. In fourth grade, and I changed schools. And I walked in that class, and I knew there were, everyone else knew each other. I was the only kid that was brand new. And I walked in, and I could feel the fact that I was the stranger. And everybody's talking and mingling and laughing and telling jokes about their summer or whatever else. And I'm just sitting there. And I remember opening up my Trapper Keeper. <laughs> at Velcro. And I get, and the teacher says, get a pencil out to take notes. And I get out my pencil. And I realized I had forgot to sharpen my school pencils. And I remember, I still remember the agonizing discomfort of knowing I had to get up. I was in the second row on the left-hand side and go to the back to the sharpener which was an electric wine, you know, and walk in front of that whole class and go back there and sharpen that pencil. And when I was walking back, by the way, I turned and I hit the, ta the table with the pencil and broke the lead. <laughs> right? And I could feel everyone looking at me and no one helping me out and no one saying, hey, it's fine or welcome to class. Right? So I felt first the discomfort of being a stranger and then I could feel the look of, He's not from this class. He's not a part of this class. And he forgot to sharpen his pencil. All right. But it actually is a painful thing to be the one who feels like a stranger. And even more painful to be treated like the stranger. And humanity, while humanity tends to avoid the stranger, as a church, River Run, we're asked to consider, well, how does God relate? to the stranger, or even the stranger's hardest to interact with, the outcast, the enemy. How does God relate to them? And so this morning, we're going to start, and over the next four weeks, we're going to look at a few different times where God interacts with someone who's considered a stranger and see how his heart is revealed. But in the Old Testament, um, the people of Israel, that's, the Old Testament really follows a story of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, kind of the beginning of their national life is, starts with them as strangers in the land of Egypt. 
where they spend 400 years there. And during those 400 years, most of that time, they, well, they are, treat, they are strangers, but then they started to be treated like strangers. And actually in Exodus 1 verse 11, it says this. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. See, when Israel first had moved to Egypt as strangers, they were just kind of a small tribal community. And over the course of a few generations, they have a whole bunch of kids, and they become a large population. And Egypt now doesn't just look at them as strangers, but as strangers that are a threat to us. And strangers that are a threat are very easy to start to despise. And so the Egyptians do, and they make them slaves. And for hundreds of years, the people of Israel live as mistreated strangers in the land of Egypt under the hand of the Egyptians. And then they cry out to their God. The God who had started their whole nation with a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah and a promise. They cry out to their God. And in Exodus chapter 3, one of the Israelites, Moses, meets this God as a fire on a mountain. And here's what God says. So the Lord told him, that's Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Notice this. I've seen what they're experiencing. I have heard their cry. I am aware of what they're experiencing. Verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. And if you then read through the rest of the book of Exodus, you see how that happens. That now from here on, God does it. God sends Moses back as his servant, and God rescues Israel from Egypt, overthrows Pharaoh, delivers them, and they are set free. And from this point on in the Old Testament, this is their gospel. You know, for us, we point back to the cross For every one of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, they point back to this. When God saved them from their slavery to Egypt as their gospel. And so the Israelite story, as they're leaving that land, and there's a whole bunch of miracles, and we don't have time to talk about it all, but as they leave their Egyptian slavery, they're going out into this wilderness called Sinai on their way towards the land God promises them. And as they leave, the Israelite story is this. God saw me, he heard my cry, he came to my rescue. God saw me, he heard my cry, and he came to my rescue. And every Israelite can root their heart in that. And as they go generation to generation, they're to say, how do I know God loves us? Well, because God saw us, he heard our cry, and he came to our rescue. So Israel knows this as they leave Egypt. And they're supposed to know this forever. They forget But they're supposed to know. But how does God feel about the strangers? Like, what about all the other nations that are out there? How does God feel about them? Does he see them? Does he care about them? And at least there's one group of strangers that I'm sure God does not care about the way he does for us. And that's them dirty, rotten Egyptians. All right, now that's just what the Israelites are saying, okay? Um, I know God must not care the same way about them. And it's at this time, as they leave Egypt and they're in this wilderness, that God has Moses give to Israel the book of Genesis, which is is this 
this book of history that reveals God's character, God's plan, and God's relationship with his people. And in the middle of that book of Genesis, which is there to kind of help these new these newly free Israelites to understand their God, understand his ways. In the middle of that book of Genesis sits a story in Genesis 16 of, you guessed it, one of those dirty, rotten Egyptians. And I want us to look at that passage. A stranger, but the worst kind of stranger, the kind that you know must be bad. In Genesis 16, this is the story of the Egyptian named Hagar. Genesis 16, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. That's important to Egyptian. That's going to stand out, right? An opposing, different country, not an Israelite, and she's a servant. She's lower in rank. She seems insignificant, named Hagar. So Sarai said, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Abram, go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. Now, as a servant of Sarai, um, Hagar was as much a possession of Sarai as that camel over there is. She just belonged to Sarai. And as her servant, Hagar, the Egyptian woman, was the stranger that was a servant of hers. And if Sarai wanted, she could send Hagar to the market to make purchases, but it was like Sarai did it. She could send uh, a Hagar to go make trade, but it was like she represented Sarai making that trade. And even more than that, her womb even belonged to Sarai. And she could be a surrogate to carry a child, but that would be Sarai's child. In verse 3 and 4, it says then that Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal, and it goes on and says, So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. And I know for us, in our current context, this is like a shocking story. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, this was a common way that the world was working at the time. So he, he takes, uh, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, gave her to Abram as a wife. Now it's important to note here, wife there is really the word concubine. So that means that uh, it's different than Sarai was for Abram. Hagar is someone who is like a young woman who has nothing to offer. No dowry, no family estate to share, to bring into it, no resources. All she has is the ability to carry children. And so she's given by Sarai to Abram as a, as a concubine. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Now, why might this be? Well, if you notice in verse 1 and 2, Sarai, when she says, I'm not pregnant, she says, the Lord is keeping me from being pregnant. And in their culture those days, all the different nations, where they thought of barren wombs, as a sign that gods were not showing you favor. And pregnancy was a sign that the gods were showing you favor. So Hagar has now this one thing in her life that makes her better than Sarai. She could get pregnant. And so she in some way uh, uh, maybe mocks or disrespects Sarai about this pregnancy. And so it goes on in verse 5 and 6. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. Is that accurate? I mean, you've been reading it. No. All right. 
But this is like a quick playback to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? It's their fault. It's his fault. It's the serpent's fault, right? Um, this is all your fault, Abram. All I do is put my servant in your arms. You got her pregnant. And now she's treating me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant. She's your animal. She's your possession. She's your servant. She's, she's under your rule. So deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Now that word harsh um, means like heavy. To, to look down on and to push down on someone to treat them as less than you. So Sarai now begins to treat Hagar not just as a stranger, but to press her down to try to make her bend her knee to say, you're a stranger and you're, a less, valuable, you're less valuable than me. So it says Hagar finally ran away. And she's an Egyptian servant. So I um, won't get into all the scholarship understanding this, but um, she now, before the next verse starts, she travels about 70 miles, which is about a week, likely on foot with just the clothes on her back and a baby in her womb. A week of traveling on foot through the wilderness, headed back towards Egypt, basically the opposite direction the Israelites were going when they left Egypt. She's on her way back for a week, alone and pregnant and carrying with her the pain of what she's just left. And for her to leave as a servant in those days, that though she was a servant, the only place on the earth that she had a guaranteed roof over her head, meal on her table, clothes to wear, safety from being attacked by others, the only place was in the household of Abram and Sarai. And so she left that behind. Now she's insecure. She's vulnerable. She's alone. She's pregnant. She's a stranger. She has no friend in the entire world. And then the next verse occurs, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, when we hear angel, I know a lot of times we picture like the British art paintings of like this whole thing. We don't know exactly what the angel looked like. Here's what we do know in the Old Testament. That when you see angel of the Lord, people saw that as they were encountering the Lord himself. So let me, is Hagar looking for the Lord when she goes out in the wilderness? No. No. She doesn't find the Lord. The Lord finds her. And speaks through his messenger, where have you come from and where are you going? And Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Hagar says, look, I'm smack dab in the middle of a journey between the place I was mistreated and very likely a place I've been forgotten. I don't know where I'm going, but I know what I'm running from. It goes on to verse 9 and 10, and the angel says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Go back there and, and go back and be under that household and have your security there. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. You're going back there. But when you go back, I want you to, that's not the end of your story. I'm going to bless your family. You're going to have more descendants than you can even count. Verse 11, and the angel also said, 
You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. That sounds familiar. So you're an Israelite having come out of the Exodus and now you're reading the story about an Egyptian, stranger, evil, servant, low class, runaway. And the Lord hears her. And it goes on in verse 13 and 14 and says this, Thereafter, Hagar then used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly, I, I, the stranger, the mistreated, the looked down on, the outcast, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. You know, in the entire Bible, there's only one person who directly gives a name to God. It's pretty wild. And what's really crazy is that the one person who gives a direct name to God is an Egyptian servant, pregnant, running through a wilderness with nowhere to go and no hope. And she gives God a name, El Roy, the God who sees me. She's an Egyptian. And the Israelites know about the gods in Egypt. And, 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 and here Hagar knows about the gods in Egypt. Those gods, you don't know what they think about you. And it's really hard to get their favor. You have to try to go to the temples and make sacrifices and do performances and rituals. And you might earn the favor of those gods that you seek after. But now she meets a God who comes, finds her, seeks her out, finds her in the wilderness, and shows his own heart of favor to her. When she's done nothing and has nothing to offer, this God is different. Because he hears and he sees. And now she goes back after this and she has Ishmael. And Ishmael starts to grow up. And later on, as we move through Genesis, uh, Abram and Sarai, Sarai, their names are changed by God to Abraham and Sarah. And they end up having the child the way God had intended for them to experience the blessing through a miracle birth of Isaac. And after Isaac is born, Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, there's another falling out between Hagar and Sarah. And at this time, Sarah decides, I don't want you to be my servant. Good luck. Get out of here. Go be a stranger in the world alone. And take your son. In chapter 21, then it says this, So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food in a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son. And she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. Here it is years later, and she's back in the wilderness. But you notice here, aimlessly, I don't even know where to go now. Now I'm not, maybe I can conceal that I'm pregnant and get back to Egypt. Now I've got a son and I've got myself and I've got a backpack with a little bit of food and a few water bottles in it and I don't know where to go. 
I'm a stranger to everybody. And the only people who know me have driven me away. And she's out in this wilderness that goes on and says this. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Probably elementary age. Then she went and sat down by herself about 100 yards away. And she spoke. And we have to wonder to who. Most likely, who is she speaking to? That God she met in the wilderness before. Elroy, the God who sees me, I don't want to watch the boy die. And she burst into tears. Then verse 17. But God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. I'm still here. And the next verse says this. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. Israelites, you're in the wilderness, but you're on your way to your promised land and you've got your God with you and he just rescued you from Egypt and he loves you. And here's how you know, this is your story. God saw me, he heard my cry, he came to my rescue and I found that he loved me. But now they're confronted with the story of an Egyptian who was a servant of their first parents, Abraham and Sarah, the beginning of Israel. And here's Hagar's story. God saw me. He heard my cry. He came to my rescue. And I found that he loved me. When no one else was around, I found there was a God who sought me out and loved me. The New Testament. The writers of the New Testament, you know what they tell us? Israel's story? Hagar's story? That's Caleb's story. That's your story. Listen, in, in Luke 19, 10, I'm going to hit you with these fast, and they're in your worship guide as well. But Luke 19, verse 10, um, Luke is describing what Jesus came to do and says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. God sent Jesus to come and find people. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. For he, God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear or beloved son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Romans 5 says this. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Sinners, enemies of God, the worst kind of stranger. And you know what began there? Friendship. Our friendship with God while we were his enemies. 
My story and your story is this. God saw me. He heard my cry. He came to my rescue. And I found that he loved me. All of us have different versions of that story. My own major moment of realizing that was right near the end of my senior year when I'm laying in my bed after a night of, of just, I was a pastor's kid that was living two different, kinds, two different lives at the same time and those lives were just crumbling around me and, and I'm almost at the end of my senior year and I get home after a late night out with friends and I sneak my way, tiptoe downstairs and I lay in the bed and just, I realized that this wasn't working and I was falling apart and all I could do on that bed is say, God, help me. And just like he did for Hagar, God saw me. He heard my cry. He came to my rescue and I found that he loved me. That's the Christian's story. If you are in Christ, that is our story. With the series, what about our Hagar's? What about our strangers? What about our strangers? You see, the tendency of humanity, like we said, is avoid the stranger. Walk around the corner. Talk to the people that you have a lot to relate with. Like, even when you come to church, it's like kind of, okay, I like these people a lot. I'll talk to them because I know how to and I'm not nervous. Right? Avoid discomfort. Avoid feeling awkward. Avoid any risk. Avoid, uh. Okay? But the heart of God towards the stranger, he sees them. He hears their cry. He pursues them with his love. The heart of God, he sees them, he hears their cry, he pursues them with his love. That's God's posture towards the stranger. And guess what? We're all strangers until we become the friends and the children of God. That's God's posture towards them. But when we read the New Testament and we look at the, the way Jesus instructed his followers to live, here's, here's the catch with that. The heart of God is this. Yes, he sees them. He hears their cry. He pursues them with his love through us. Through us. My daughter, um, I have a daughter, she has something called Smith-McGinnis syndrome. Um, and uh, her, oh, Maya, some of you know Maya. Sometimes she helps to greet out here. And I remember when, when, when Maya, we got diagnosis, and we're figuring out like, oh, our life's going to be different than we expected, and there's a whole bunch of challenges and all that stuff. I was reading the description of Smith-McGinnis syndrome, and one of the words that it said to describe it was incredibly welcoming to strangers. Which when you're a dad of a daughter and you're reading about your four-year-old and what her life looks like and you hear welcoming to strangers, my first feeling is like, oh no. And I knew, I, even in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit press on my heart and say, that's my nature. She's bearing my image. Now, yeah, I got to watch out for her. We got to care for her. We got to protect her. And some of you have experienced my daughter has a different way of engaging with the world than I often do. For her, people start as someone she loves. For me, people might become someone I love. That's my tendency of my own heart, if I'm honest. 
They start as strangers. They got to earn their way to be in love like family. But in Maya, I see this constant reflection of the nature of God that when she sees someone, she meets someone. I just saw the other day, we went to get my one daughter's ears pierced like four years ago at a Walmart. And Maya, there's a picture of Maya with the two ladies working at Walmart, smiling, taking a photo with them at the end because to her, these were her friends. And for me, I constantly see this image of that's the way of God. That's the way of God. Before someone proves anything, earns anything, offers anything, God's pursuing them with his love to give them everything. But he does that through us. And as we move towards the end of the message and into our response time, um, I want to kind of push into these two different ways that this message could press on your heart. One, maybe you're Hagar. Maybe you are in the season of your life that for the rest of your life, this will be the time you look back to where you say, oh, it was then that I realized that God really did see me. He heard my cry and he came to rescue me and I realized that he loves me. And maybe you're Hagar and you've got a whole list of reasons why you can say, well, look how everyone else treats me or look at my status in this world and you have all these reasons to tell yourself I'm not worthy and yet God is standing right there and saying, I want you to know me as the God who sees you. And seeing you, I love you. Maybe that's where you're at today. If that's true, I pray that you would say to him what Hagar said. You're the God who sees me. And maybe the rest of us, maybe we're the Israelites. And we believe it for ourselves. But the challenge for us is, how do we relate with Hagar's in our own life? The way that God reveals to the stranger that he is seeking them is that his people are seeking them too. The way that God and I'm convicted by this as I say it because this is something I'm, I struggle with in my own life. I like to protect my time and my comfort and my peace. The way that my neighbor will discover that God loves them is that his people are loving them too. So if you're Hagar, come on. Come home. Welcome to the family. And if you're like the Israelites, let's remember the same love we've experienced. God is eagerly desiring to show to those in our life, even those we most want to avoid, maybe especially those that we most want to avoid. Our response, uh, we have three ways to do that. And if you've been here for a while, I just want to kind of bring us to, that to our attention again. In the back are, are the baskets for, for, for giving. Um, you may do that online as well. And, and here at River Run, when we give, we do not give to earn something from God. We came to the story just like Hagar. We offered nothing and he gave us everything. And so our offering is just a response to say, God, everything I've got is from you. So here, take it and use it for your good and your glory. Um, secondly, we have at the tables on both sides, we have places to go and receive communion. So I encourage you, if you are a follower of Christ, you put faith in Him, you've experienced that story of God's rescue in your life, then go there and remember 
Um, you can receive that, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You remember what Christ has done for you. And thirdly, we'll have some of the leaders will be at the, uh, both sides here near the crosses. Please, if you came in carrying a burden or while I'm talking and saying all my words, the Holy Spirit's pushing something on your heart, come, let's have a conversation. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord together. We'd love to lean into that with you. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to move into that. And as we, as we come out of prayer, we're going to go into song, Make Room. And there's so many ways that we can make room for God. And specifically in this series, I think, consider how you might make room for God to love you. And you might make room for God to love the stranger through you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are the Israelites. We were stuck in our slavery and had no way out, and you came and saved us. And we are Hagar. We had nothing to offer, nothing to bring to you to earn your affection, to earn your love. And you sought us out, you found us, and you revealed that you see us and you love us. And Lord, I pray that that would just wash over our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would draw us close to you. And as that happens, you would also move us close to the stranger in our community. That everyone might see, hear, and know the good news of your heart for them expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.